Okay, this morning is Sunday, July 24th. It's a couple days after Christopher David Hall is born and 20-something days after Abigail was born. Our church is being blessed with, uh, with new babies, huh? All kind of ways to make the church grow. Looks like ours is going to start in the nursery. <laughs> All those years uh, under Catholic-ruled Lafayette uh, apparently has affected us. <laughs> oh, goodness. This morning, our topic is, um, is halakha. That's a Hebrew word. It's H-A-L-A-K-H-A-H. Halakha. Halakha. H-A-L-A-K-H-A-H. I know that's confusing to hear all of that, huh? Here's how that word breaks down so that you can learn to say it. How, H-A-L-A-K, then H-A-H, ha, halakha, halakha, halakha. In Hebrew, most of the time, the last syllable is what is pronounced, the, the heaviest. And because they use more of their mouths when they speak than we do, uh, it tends to come from the back of the throat, halakha. Okay, now, you all want to know what that means, don't you? We're not going to revert back to the uh, early part of this century and the previous centuries before that where we did a mass in a foreign language. <laughs> you wouldn't get anything out of it, right? I think that was their point. Um, it means to walk with, proceed with, or go with something. And this is important. So our topic this morning is halakha, walking. And uh, I tell you what, what we ought to do is let's just turn to Genesis 5 and we'll let some of this come together for you. Do y'all, I know it's hard and I'm going to put some signs up here, but do you all appreciate hearing and learning some of these things that are in Hebrew? Who remembers what Baruch Atah Adonai means? Baruch, Atah, Adonai. Bless you, O Lord. Can anybody begin the Shema? This Deuteronomy 6.4? Shema, Ya Israel, Adonai, Eloheinu, Adonai, Echad. Uh, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Isn't that good? I'll try to pick up a few little phrases for you every week. I've got a book right uh, in the library in my house. It says Hebrew for dummies, so I figured that was for me. Okay, are y'all in Genesis 5? Our topic this morning is walking with God. In Genesis 5, starting in the 24th verse, you see this curious phrase. Starting in the 21st verse, rather. It says, When Enoch had lived 65 years, he became the father of Methuselah. Anybody know what Methuselah's name means just for fun? Uh, you're hearing two definitions coming from the audience at the moment, or the congregation rather, and that's because different people define this differently, but they mean the same thing. Somebody hollered out standard, and somebody else uh, hollered out when I die, judgment comes. They're both true. Methuselah was the standard by which God measured his time period before judgment. Watch this phrase. Isn't this interesting? When Enoch had lived 65 years, he became the father of Methuselah, the guy who's the standard for judgment. And after he became the father of Methuselah, Enoch walked with God 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Enoch lived 365 years. Enoch walked with God, then was no more, because God took him away. Basically, what you see happen is Enoch made it 65 years into his life, 
and apparently was not walking very closely with God. He had a son, and Hebrews named their children differently than we do. They didn't name their child just what was stylish for the day. They didn't name their child just based on what somebody in their family had been named, although that could be a choice. They named their child based on what they thought their spiritual function would be. So when an angel told uh, Joseph that uh, the child born to Mary was going to be named something, he said, name him Yeshua, which was the Hebrew word for salvation. It implies Yahweh's salvation. This implied what Jesus' function in his life would be. He would be the man who brought salvation. Well, when Enoch named his child, apparently he had an experience with God because the child's name meant one day God's judgment's coming and this kid's going to be the standard for it. That's what Methuselah means. And it says he then began to walk with God or that he walked with God 300 years. Now, it's arguable from the text whether he walked with God before that, but it does not take a huge stretch of the imagination to see that when his child was named that, the Bible begins to uh, clearly state that he walked with God. But what does it mean to walk with God? See, we're finding out, as I'm studying, that the Hebrew mindset was different than ours. And this is really important because we've inherited a Hebrew book full of Hebrew people and a Hebrew religion. It's become very Hellenized through the last 2,000 years. In fact, it's become so Hellenized that it doesn't resemble the original. But like most things in, in our lives, we're trying to return. We're continuing a process of reformation, trying to return to the truest state that the church is supposed to be in. And uh, we say, we want a Book of Acts church. Well, that's true. The Book of Acts church, though, was entirely Hebraic. They didn't even have a canon of New Testament Scripture to read. They were writing it. So when we talk about being a Book of Acts church and we want to be powerful like they were in the New Testament, the best way to do that is to get acquainted with what Hebrews 11, I'm sorry, Romans 11, calls our Hebraic roots. It says that we don't support it it supports us. Well, since this Hebraic root supports us, I want to learn about it. And what you find out is that in our Greek Hellenized world, we emphasize creed. That's what we emphasize. Stephen, what do you believe? Diana, what do you believe? What is your creed? Give me your doctrinal statement. The Hebrew world never emphasized creed. They emphasize deed. So in your walk with God, we're going to look at creed, versus deed. Can the two be related? Of course they can. James tells us that your creed should determine your deeds. And one without the other is dead. That faith, which we're calling creed, faith without works, the deeds, is dead. No use to you at all. Well, the Hebrews had no such distinction between the two. In fact, the word for faith was a verb. It meant to act. It's only in our English perversion that we have made it be some kind of noun, something that you just possess. When you think of faith in the Bible, you need to think of the word trust. So what does it mean to walk with God? Let's look at somebody else that walked with God real quick. It's in Genesis 6, starting in verse 9. This is the account of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time. And he walked with God. Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. He goes on to talk about how corrupt the earth was. 
Noah was somebody who walked with God during his days. To a Hebrew, they did not describe, never, not anywhere in the Old Testament, your relationship with God in terms of what you did and did not believe. If I ask a Christian today in the United States, tell me, are you a Christian? They'll reply with the title heading, the denominational heading that formulates their doctrine of what they believe. Hebrews didn't think of it that way. They thought of their entire life belonging to God and them walking with Him, being Him directing their steps. So you were either walking with God in your life, Him directing your steps, ordering your path, or you were not walking in God's ways. But it was all an action. You were doing what God wanted you to do, or you were not doing what God wanted you to do. You find out that this idea of a plan A and a plan B God is really a modern invention. Well, God's plan for me was this, and, well, that didn't work out, so now we're on plan B. There's no such thing. There is one way that is right in the Bible, and it's God's way. We're going to cover that today. Turn with me to Isaiah, though, on this deed versus creed. Have you never had the idea that in the Old Testament, what God was really interested in was sacrifices? What God was really interested in was keeping a ritualistic law, the law of Moses. And that in the New Testament, we're free from all of that. We even look upon it with some disdain. I want you to see this in Isaiah. It's in the very first chapter of Isaiah. If you're looking for Isaiah in the Thompson chain, it's in the 700s of your pages. And uh, it's on page 757. Christians have greatly erred. There was a heresy that entered into the early church. The early church threw the guy out. His name was Marcion. And he began to teach that the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, which had never been called the Old Covenant before then, was somehow inferior to the New and separate from. Augustine picked this up later on in church history and expounded upon it greatly. In other words, what the early church threw out and said was garbage, trash, refuse, we want no part of it, Later on, the church with wide open arms accepted and embraced. And it was the idea that all of the Old Testament was inferior to the New. If that's true, the book that Paul was reading, the book that Jesus lived by, the book that Peter had taken his stand on, was all garbage and should be thrown out. It's not true. What you'll find revealed over and over and over in the Old Testament is that the law or instruction of God, and you all know through some of the other messages that, I, that I've taught, there's a problem with our word law. We think of law as restrictions, what you cannot do. Hebrews didn't think of law as restrictions, although there were. They thought of it as what you get to do, the right way to live. They looked at the glass half full. The function of the law was not to show you everything that you can't do. It was to show you the right way to live. Now, it's true that Romans speaks about the law acting as a restraint. It was to restrain them from living all the ways they shouldn't, but the purpose of it was life, the right kind of life. Well, on that note, are you all in Isaiah? In Isaiah 1, starting uh, verse 10. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Listen to the law of our God, you people of Gomorrah. Does Sodom and Gomorrah even exist when this book was written? This book was written around 740 B.C. What happened to Sodom and Gomorrah around 2000 B.C., 1300 years before this? It was destroyed. God's speaking to His people, 
and assigning to them the names of some sinful people because he doesn't like the way they're acting. Okay? That's not to say the Jewish nation was bad. This whole book is about their redemption and our inclusion in their redemption, our becoming a part of them. But that sets the tenor for this. The multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me? Says the Lord. I have more than enough burnt offerings of rams and of the fat of fattened animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. When you come to appear before me, who has asked this of you, this trampling of my courts? Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. New moons, Sabbaths, and convocations. I cannot bear your evil assemblies. You know what is so hard about this? I mean, aside from being called Sodom and Gomorrah, God told them to do all of these things. So why is He calling them meaningless? Why is He saying that they're evil? God told them to do this. Well, let's see if the Scripture will shed some light on it. Your new moon festivals and your appointed feast, my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Even if you offer many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Encourage the oppressed. Defend the cause of the fatherless. And plead the case of the widow. Was God really interested in how many bulls died that day? How many people carried a goat somewhere? All of these sacrifices were instituted to teach something. They were instituted as God's instruction because God wanted to teach them about justice and righteousness and taking up the cause of the oppressed, looking after the fatherless, looking after the orphans. You can do all of the right things by the letter of Christianity or of Judaism or of the way or whatever you want and your heart cannot be right and it's meaningless. Isaiah later goes on to say, inasmuch as these people talk about me with their lips, their hearts are far from me. This is where the church is today. This is exactly where the church is today. We believe that Jesus was Lord and that He was raised on the, the third day suffered under Pontius Pilate. We can cite the whole creed, all of those things, but we are lacking the deeds that God told us to do. He did never, never pull us aside. Never in the Word and say, Bobby, what I really want you to do is just believe. The Bible never focuses on that. It focuses on what your walk is doing. And you're going to find out in the Bible, not only is there a way to walk, there are paths to walk on. There's a path called the wicked. There's a path called the righteous. And there are things on each of those paths. A way to walk and a path to walk on. And God wanted this. In other words, we tend to view the Gospel as something to be intellectually accepted. The Hebrews tended to view the good news of God as a pilgrimage that you were experiencing as you traveled through life. I'll cover this in another message. But one of the greatest things that happened to the church in a negative fashion was that under Origen, somebody who had been thoroughly immersed in the Greek world, came the idea, because he borrowed it from Plato, that the spiritual world was pure, the spiritual world was good, and everything in the natural and physical world was bad. Well, this is not a thought the Hebrews had ever had. The Hebrews saw everything in the earth 
is good because God created it. And what did God say after He'd created everything on each day? It's good, 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 and very good. So they didn't see anything as bad. This thing that creeped into the church through Origen and later was championed by Augustine and so many other Greek thinkers has so perverted the church that now all you ever hear anybody in the church talking about, and this would be another message, so I might have to shut up here, but all you ever hear them talking about is leaving this old, rotten, stinking, putrid, filthy earth behind and going to some spiritual place. That's not what the Bible's about. It's never been about that. In the Hebrew mindset, this earth belonged to God. It was good. You belonged to God and you were good. But there were some problems in the world that needed to be set straight. And they would be set straight because this was God's possession. See, as we separated ourselves from the Hebraic root, we opened ourselves up to believe anything. And Plato was a brilliant guy, but he wasn't filled with God's Holy Spirit. And so, although he was superior to most men intellectually, he's inferior to the least in the church with the Spirit of God. And as the church lost its Hebrew influence and picked up this Hellenistic thought, heresies entered the church. So that now you can go to Walmart and buy a whole series of books about flying away. That's something that the Hebrews never would have conceived of. Never. Why would you fly away? The earth is God's inheritance and it's my inheritance. And we're made to dwell in it forever, the Bible says. Do you remember Jesus prayed or or taught the, the meek will inherit the earth? This was a Hebrew thought. It was never a thought that you were... Salvation became nothing more after Origen's day. Nothing more than leaving this body and entering the spiritual world. That was salvation. Hebrews never thought of salvation in that way. You look up the word salvation or saved or delivered or any of those things in the Bible and you know what you see? Delivered from problems on the earth. Not leaving the earth, delivered through the problems that are on the earth. God providing for you. God protecting you. God showing His love and His mercy to you. They saw salvation in a very real, physical sense. say, well, what about the spiritual part? They saw that in a physical sense too. The resurrection of your body. That will fix the whole thing. You know, one of the great arguments between this Trinitarian idea and the oneness idea has to do with God being three parts or one part. Three persons or one person. Or some combination, all those things. You know what's funny? The Hebrews did not think of our bodies as separate parts, but the Greeks did. The Greeks said that your spirit was totally pure. Your flesh was totally evil. And the two were at war with each other. Is there some truth to that? Sure. Paul talks about desires in your flesh. But Paul never thought of them as separate things. You were one person. And so the problem wasn't just to shed this flesh. The problem was for your flesh to get in line with your spirit as one person. This is how the Hebrew Bible can explain the many characteristics, personalities, and facets of God and say, He is Echad. He's one. Oh, He's diverse, many things, but He's one God. And we Greeks can't get hold of that thought. We either have to fall into a oneness category or a Trinitarian category that are both wrong because we can't get that Hebrew thought in our head because it's foreign to us. Well, Isaiah begins to describe to us what God was after. Righteousness. He's after taking up the cause of the fatherless and the widow. And listen to what he says. This is important. It's verse 18. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are crimson, as red as crimson, they shall be like wool. 
If you're willing and obedient, you will eat the best of the land. But if you resist and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword. In your walk with God, when Enoch walked with God, when Noah walked with God, what did that mean? It meant that they were obedient, that God showed them things to do and they did them. The belief is its an afterthought. Of course they believed or they wouldn't have done it. We want to hold up what we believe instead of what we do. We even tell our kids that. Do what I say and not what you see me do. Jesus did just the opposite. He said, do not believe me. Do not believe me unless you see me do what the Father does. That's amazing. It's two different schools of thought. And one is wrong and one is right. The Greeks did wonderful things for the world. Most of the inventions that have come in the world have come through the Greeks. And it's fantastic. I'm happy to have that heritage. But you know what? When that prophecy was given over Ham, Shem, and Japheth, Shem was not told to go get in Japheth's tent. Japheth was the father of the Greeks. Shem was the father of the Hebrews. Japheth was told to crawl into Shem's tent. Now, that's a whole other message in itself. But the bottom line is, though we be Greek, our religion is of the Jews. And we better learn about that. Now, there's an interesting thing here. He says, though your sins are red, they're scarlet, I can forgive them. Though they're red, he said, even crimson, I can make them like wool. That's an interesting thing. You know, that's not at all what the Hebrew Scripture says. Oh, it's what it means. Our Bibles are wonderful. They tell us what it means. But it's like the cliff notes for dummies because that's not what it says. You know what it actually says? You know what the word for scarlet is? Or crimson, rather? You'll like this. It's tola. There, there's a Hebrew word that's not hard to say, huh? Tola. You know what tola is? It's a worm. What on earth? That makes no sense. It was a worm that they crushed up and that they boiled and it was the most stringent dye that they had. Of all the kinds of dye they had, this was the most indelible ink they could produce. So literally what God is saying to them is, even though your sins are red, indelible as crimson dye of the tola worm, I am able to forgive your sin, renew your life, and allow you to stand totally clear. This is a message that goes out to us, those of us that are trying to walk with God. It's not about getting it perfect. It's about trying with everything that you have. And as bad as you stain your life, you could take the most nasty stain that you could possibly get on you. God is able to make you white again if you're trying to walk with Him. That's the message that Isaiah is teaching. It's not about the rituals, guys. It's about your heart. You can get the ritual right and the heart wrong and you're stained nasty and what you're doing is meaningless. But look, come reason with me. I'm able to make you white again. So why bring up the Tola thing? Why bring up... Because the Hebrews were very functional in their thought. They were action-oriented. Their sentences even started with the verb first. We start with the noun first. Really typical. You know? Eric went to the blah, blah, blah. They would say, went, Eric did, to the store. Sounds like Yoda, I know. But the point is, everything that they did was about painting a vibrant, powerful picture. As I've talked with some of you, as you're reading through the Word, you see that horrible things are displayed that men of faith did. And it's confusing. Hebrews embraced all of humanity. They embraced every bit of it. To them, nothing was outside of God's eye, outside of God's blessing. So they lived life to the fullest. 
It was the Greek influence that came in that was so stoic that said, we neither feel pleasure nor do we feel pain. We're just logical, reasonable, rational people. That was not how the Hebrews were. That's why they danced, they cried, they sang, they embraced every bit of life. That old nasty Greek spirit got into the church so much that ever since the flesh was supposed to be evil, Plato taught, and the Hellenistic Christians began to accept those ideas, think about these conclusions. I lived where they permeated everything. Everything that the flesh does is bad. So look, you want to be more spiritual? Don't eat meat on Fridays. Everything that the flesh does is bad. So you want to be more spiritual? You can only have relations with your wife to produce a child. Augustine in the third... I'm sorry, Thomas Aquinas in the 13th century said that if you had sexual relations with your wife... Now remember the Hebrews said that marriage was holy. The Hebrews said the marriage bed was undefiled. The, the uh, first couple chapters of the Hebrew Bible speak about multiplying all over the earth. Thomas Aquinas spoke about that act as a concession for wicked, sinful desires of the flesh and said that if you were doing this for any reason other than to bring forth life, which was a concession, it was equal in gravity to a sin like homicide. Now, we look at it and we go, oh my God, how could he say that? The effects of it are still being reaped around the world. That's where the ban on contraception comes from. That's where the thought that pervades that whole church comes from. That's why you have monks that go live in monasteries. Why go live in a monastery? Why take a vow of poverty? Why refuse to be around the world? Because the world's evil and we have to be more spiritual. This is why our paintings of Jesus look the way they do. Some little cracker, scrawny guy with a little bitty mouth that couldn't enjoy life, couldn't do anything because he has to be more spiritual. He can't be of this world. The Hebrews did not view life this way. Your life was a journey full of all that God had for you and you were walking in it. Now when we walk in it, there's another word. And this word's just as important as halakha. It's teshubah. T-E-S. H-U-B-A-H. Teshuvah. Anybody want to guess at Teshuvah? If Holocaust to walk with God, and that's what God was after, if I stood up and said, Hero Israel, Teshuvah. <laughs> it's repent. Now, in re- to repent, we've heard many beautiful sermons on repent. This word is also used, Teshuvah, of a chariot going down a road. You find out that the chariot is headed in the wrong direction. He has to teshuba. He has to turn his chariot around and head the other way. This is because in your walk with God, there are times you find out you are not walking where He wanted you to walk. Not a plan A and a plan B, God. One path, one way. And so what you would do was easy. You'd backtrack until you found the way of God again. You would teshuba. That was the Hebrew word for repent. He's so simple. He's so simple. He says, I want you to walk with me. Look, whatever your mistakes are, I'll fix them. Just walk with me. And if you get off the path, teshuba, turn around. Get back on the path. There's no condemnation in that. There's no being beaten down in that. No, what a wicked, bad, sinful, fleshy person you are. No, all it was was, look, this is what I desire for you. I'm showing you. You're off base. Turn around, get back on base. Boy, isn't that beautiful? People talk about how narrow the Gospel is, how closed-minded Christians are, how mean-spirited they are. If they are, it's because they've accepted heresies that they ought not have. 
This was not the Gospel. This is how you see mighty men of the faith do horrible things and yet they're still credited with righteousness. Why? They were walking with God. Oh yeah, they got off the path here and there, but they teshuba. They turned around and got back on the path. When Abraham sinned, that was not the end of Abraham's life. He continued to walk with God. When David sinned, it wasn't the end of his life. He continued to walk with God. See, this was a whole different thing than either living spiritual or physical. They lived both because a human being is both. This is why somebody can have a problem with wine and somebody else can sing a blessing. Thank you, God, for giving us wine. You know, it's simple things like this. When you go eat after church, those of you that are very pious, and I'm teasing you, you'll do what over your meals? Pray. And you pray before you eat, right? And what do you do? What do we call that? Blessing the, the food. Blessing the food, right? You know where that comes from? A Hebrew never blessed his food. In fact, the New Testament picked up on an Old Testament desire, a theme, and says anything eaten in thankfulness is clean. You know what they did? They blessed God, they blessed God, not the food. They blessed God because He had provided for them in this life. You know where the idea of blessing the food comes from? The food's somehow part of this material world, somehow tainted, somehow unholy, and you have to bless it to make it clean before you eat it. That's total garbage. It's garbage that is entered in through Greek thought. It was never a Jewish thought. Incidentally, if I have water here, and I have to bless it to make it holy? It's already holy. God made it. If I drink it in thankfulness, it's holy. If I use it in God's service, it's holy. I don't have to bless it to make it holy. All that God made, He already said in Genesis, was good. That ought to free you from some thoughts there, huh? Now, does that mean you can't use any of it in a bad fashion? Well, sure you can. Go refine certain plants and make white powders and snort them all of your life and it'll ruin your life. That doesn't mean that everything that God made that was good, when used inappropriately, is good. The creation's being perverted. We have to be careful about that. But what God made is good. This is how Paul got the revelation and the freedom to know that all food was good and that Jesus had declared all food good. That's how he got the revelation. God made distinctions between kinds of food. He was trying to teach them. He was trying to instruct them. Some things are holy and some things aren't. Not that the creation itself was bad. Not even that the food was bad. This was an instrument in their everyday life that taught them to make a distinction. And I keep saying them and I should say you because these words were given to you just like them. I said, but wait a minute. The laws were only given to Israel. They were given to Israel as an example to you. They may have been binding upon Israel, but they were an example for you. We're going to keep reading that. David says, I treasure your laws in my heart. You know, I meditate on them day and night. Incidentally, we had a question on the board not long ago. When I pray, why do I have to pray out loud? Why can't I pray in my mind? That was the question. We answered it in a lot of ways. I learned something in my Hebrew studies recently. The word for meditate in Hebrew is the same word for a murmur or a growl like a lion. When the Bible says meditate on your words day and night, what it meant was you're speaking them to yourself. A low murmur. When we think of meditation, we think of Eastern meditation, right? Well, that's okay. If you think of the Dalai Lama or something, at least they hum, <laughs> you know? But to murmur, to meditate on it day and night meant that they were always on your mouth. Isn't that what God told them to do in Deuteronomy? 
They should always be on your mouth. There's a way of the wicked. Turn with me. Well, first, let's look at the two ways. Let's look at Deuteronomy. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 11. Thank you. I'm going to be beaten back by this time, I can see already. You know what the first thing... (laughs) The first thing that God really truly sanctified was time. He blessed the seventh day and said it was holy. Because the Hebrews, the whole creation was already blessed by God and God sanctified time because this was how you would know you were walking with God. As the days went by, you could measure it. Deuteronomy 11, starting in verse 22. If you carefully observe all these commands I am giving you to follow, to love the Lord your God, to walk in all His ways, and to hold fast to Him, then the Lord will drive out these nations before you, and you will dispossess nations larger and stronger than you. Every place where you set your foot will be yours. Your territory will extend from the desert. And he goes on and on and on to what territory they would receive. But when he describes all of these commands, I am giving you to follow, to love the Lord your God, to walk in all His ways, and to hold fast to Him. Then the Lord will drive out. In other words, all of the commands that God gave, and there were 613 of them, were summed up in loving the Lord your God, walking in His ways. Not that that's all you did, but that that was the point of them, to instruct you in how to walk. Now, he goes on to say, verse 26, See, I am setting before you today a blessing and a curse. The blessing if you obey the commands of the Lord your God that I am giving you today. The curse if you disobey the commands of the Lord your God and turn from the way that I commanded you today by following other gods which you have not known. In other words, God's saying, look, I'm setting before you two ways. One way is a way of blessing and the other way is a way of curse. If you turn from walking with me to follow other gods, then that's a curse. Now, there's always Teshuvah. You can always repent from that and come back because God's mercy is unending. But there were only two ways set before people. Proverbs defined those ways. And turn with me to Proverbs. Psalms and then Proverbs. We're going to be in Psalms and Proverbs for a while, so hold your finger there. And in Proverbs 15, starting in verse 9, the Lord detests the way of the wicked. But He loves those who pursue righteousness. The Bible calls this way of curse, this way that is not God's way, the way of the wicked. If you're going to walk, right? If you're going to walk with God, you have to walk on something. And God calls these different things. One, He calls the way of the wicked. What do you think He calls the other? The way of the righteous. In fact, you see the way of the righteous in Psalms 1. You can turn there because we're going to stay in Psalms. Verse 6. Keep your finger in Psalms. We're going to be here for a while. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. There are two roads, if you will, 
You might even say one is narrow and the other is broad. I wonder where Jesus got that idea. That strike an accord with anybody? It's Matthew 7. When these words get translated from Hebrew to Greek to English, sometimes the, the word changes a little bit, but the thought is exactly the same. Jesus on His Mount of uh, Beatitudes speech was teaching the same thing that the Old Testament had always taught. Said this way for the righteous is narrow, it's harder, and there's only a few who find it. And the path that leads to destruction, the way of the wicked, it's broad and most people are on that. That's what he was saying and it's what all of the Old Testament says. Well, if we want to walk with God, we better find out how to walk in that right way. The way the, for the Lord watches over the way of the righteous. I want Him watching over my way. The others seem to be left to fend for themselves with their Father watching over them who comes only to steal, to kill, and to destroy. But Jesus came to give us life and life more abundantly. I won't let any man, Latin, Greek, otherwise, take away that abundant life from me through his twisted thinking. It's our job to find out what the Scripture tells us to do. In Psalm 17, so you can turn to your right. Seventeen, Psalm 17 on page 610 in the Thompson chain. Starting in verse 1. Hear, O Lord. What is that? Shema Adonai. I don't claim to be a Hebrew scholar. I'm reading Hebrew for dummies. Okay? I'm not even a novice yet. I don't even have the alphabet down. But isn't it fun to learn these little things? Not even actually Adonai. They insert Adonai for another word that they don't want to use carelessly. It's Yahweh. They don't want to use God's name carelessly because they took Him seriously when He said, don't use my name in vain. Hear, O Lord, my righteous plea. Listen to my cry. Give ear to my prayer. It does not rise from deceitful lips. May my vindication come from You. May Your eyes see what is right. Though You probe my heart and examine me at night, though You test me, You will find nothing. I have resolved that my mouth will not sin. You know what the word for resolved is? Not the Hebrew word, but I'll, I'll tell you what, the, what this is translated from. I've set my face that my mouth won't sin. To resolve in Hebrew is to set your face. Isn't that a beautiful, vivid picture? I'm turning my face and I will not turn from it. Isn't that great? Sometimes the Bible says set your face like flint. I have resolved that my mouth will not sin. As for the deeds of men by the word of your lips... I have kept myself from the ways of the violent. My steps have held to your paths. Paths and ways, the same thing. He's saying, I am fighting with all I have. I've resolved myself to stay on your path. I'm trying to walk with you. The path you've shown me, I'm walking on. My steps have held to your paths. My feet have not slipped. I call on you, O God, for you will answer me. Give ear to me and hear my prayer. Because remember, the Lord is watching over those that are on His path. That's what Psalms 1-6 said. Show the wonder of your great love, you who save by your right hand, those who take refuge in you from their foes. Keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings. That makes no sense, does it? Anybody got an apple in their eye in here? 
And how does God have wings? What, is He a bird now? He's, he's, he's the great American eagle, isn't He? That makes no sense to us unless you study the Hebrew book from the Hebrew's perspective. Numbers 15 taught the Israelites to do something. It said that all Israelites, all the Jewish men, had to have one of those. Right there, what's wrapped around the shofar. That garment, that prayer shawl, with zitzit on the corners. It had 613 knots in it for the 613 commands of God. They all wore them so that these tassels on all four corners were visible, reminding everybody that they were trying to walk in God's way that they were under God's authority and so they had authority to walk in God's way. So when David is crying and praying out to God for vindication, he says, wow, you'll hide me in the shadow of your wings. Why wings? Because in his mind, since God told him to wear one, God was wearing this prayer shawl. And it was like wings to him. He said, you'll hide me in the protection of your commands. You'll hide me in your authority. You will cover me with your covering." This shows up all over in the Bible. The woman who reached out to touch the hem of Jesus' garment. That's what she was doing. She was saying, I'm submitting to Your authority, Lord. I'm grabbing the tassels on Your garment, believing that as You walk with God, there's something that You're saying that's for me. She risked her life for that. Lots and lots of examples. And that's another message on the Internet. But what is this apple of the eye thing? In the ancient world, the apple of your eye was your pupil. It was the sinner. So what what does that mean? What is he saying? Keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings. What is he saying? He's saying, Lord, I want to be in the very center of your eyes. Keep your eyes on me. Keep your commands. Keep your authority over me. Protect me, Lord. He's crying out for vindication because people want to kill him. Because he's walking with God and they want to kill him. Doesn't it make more sense though? We don't need to turn to Plato. We certainly don't need to turn to any corrupt medieval theologians to find out what this stuff means. Just read the Old Testament. Do your best to read after people that have read about the Hebrew culture. But most everything you need, the best... People keep asking me, where can I learn about Hebraic roots? Let's start in the Old Testament. When, you, when you've read those 39 books and you've got to memorize, then we'll move to extra-biblical sources. I'm teasing you, but that is a right attitude. Keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings. From the wicked who assail me, from my mortal enemies who surround me, they close up their callous hearts. In Hebrew, that's literally their hearts are stopped up. (laughs) It's not wishful thinking. I mean, what he's saying is their hearts. The Hebrews thought of the heart as the center of a human being. That's what they thought. In fact, the streets in Old Testament Israel, and the Greeks picked this up too, were called the cardo. The center of the city. The heart of it. When the Bible says God's heart was filled with pain in Genesis 6, it's saying in the very center of who God is, He was hurting. Isn't that interesting? Turns me to Psalm 119. The whole point of Psalm 17 was that God holds the righteous in His way. He'll help you so that your feet don't slip from His path. That, that, and the way that He does it is by His commands. Psalm 119 is easy to find because it's so big. Hundreds of verses. Starting in verse 30. You on verse 30? I'm not. (laughs) I have chosen the way of truth. 
I have set my heart on your laws, the way of truth. I've set my heart on your laws. I hold fast to your statutes, O Lord. Do not let me be put to shame. I run in the path of your commands. For you have set my heart free. David's not only walking in them, he's trying to run in them. And what did he call the path of truth? God's righteous decrees, his statutes, his ordinances, his law, his instruction to man. Isn't that a much more wholesome view than the view that we often have of the law? as somehow being against us? David saw it as a safeguard for him. He saw it as the way of life. Righteousness. In Proverbs, keep your finger in Psalms. Proverbs, one book to the right. Chapter 2. Listen to how this is said. Proverbs 2, starting in verse 1. My son, if you accept my words... What was God's words in the Old Testament called? Law. My son, if you accept my words and store up my commands, uh uh-oh, commands within you, turning your ear to wisdom and applying your heart to understanding, and if you call out for insight and cry aloud for understanding, if you look for it as for silver and search for it as for hidden treasure, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom, and from His mouth comes knowledge and understanding. He holds victory in store for the upright. He is a shield to those whose walk is blameless. For He guards the course, or the way, of the just, and protects the way of His faithful ones. Then you will understand what is right and just and fair and every good path. For wisdom will enter your heart, and knowledge will be pleasant to your soul." Discretion will protect you and understanding will guard you. Let me go ahead and read two more verses. Wisdom will save you from the ways of the wicked men, from men whose words are perverse, who leave the straight paths to walk in dark ways. He's saying if you want to walk with God, His justice will protect you. He will guard you and all of you do. He said... He'll keep you on a straight path so you don't walk in the ways of darkness. We've been asked lately, how do you hear from God? The first way you hear from God, Romans 12 says, is to wholly dedicate yourself to Him. Wonder where He got that idea. Maybe He got it from the Proverbs. That's exactly what this is teaching. Store up the commands in your heart. Hang on His every word. Dedicate your way to walking with Him. And you know what? He will give you wisdom and knowledge and understanding. In other words, God desperately wants you to walk in this way. So He will nudge you into place. Does that remind you of anyone's conversion? He will nudge you into place? Saul, Saul, why do you kick against the goads, against the pricks? What is that saying? He was trying to walk with God and he kept getting off course and he couldn't teshuba. He couldn't turn around. So God started poking him with things, getting him to adjust his course so that he would be on the straight path. If you love the Lord, whatever correction it takes in your path, He will provide for you. So much so that if you are in Jerusalem and you head down to Jericho, He'll provide for you a beating so you have the opportunity to get back on that road headed the right way. He loves you. So much of the Gospel is about just walking after God, but walking is an action. It cannot be done sitting in your seats. It cannot be done laying on your couch or your bed. A walk with God has to do with action for Him. We think, we say, oh, I took a huge step of faith. 
Well, let's try a walk of faith and maybe we can progress to what David said, running in his way. You walk one step at a time, but we think, oh, I'm good. I did it for a year. I'm good. A couple years ago, God spoke to me and I moved. I'm good. A couple years ago, He spoke to me and I did It is a lifelong walk. If you're not moving, you're not walking with God. God's very active. He's got actions for you all of the time. Ephesians 2 teaches that He saved you. And yeah, it was faith and it was mercy, but He saved you so you would do the good things He prepared for you to do. In Psalm 128, got just a few minutes left, but I want you to hear this. Isn't it amazing? You can get an entire message and never turn to the New Testament. I guess Marcion was wrong. Must be why the Hebrew church fathers threw him out. Psalm 128. You want to know what verse? We're going to read the whole thing. (laughs) Psalm 128, page 692 of the Thompson Chain. Blessed are all who fear the Lord, who walk in His ways. You will eat the fruit of your labor. Blessings and prosperity will be yours. Your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house. Your sons will be like olive shoots around your table. Now, here's another one. What on earth? That thing right up over there next to Paige's head on the wall, that's an olive shoot. The thing about olive trees is when they are seeding, when olive trees are growing, their root systems stay in the earth for a long time. And I know you have heard that about Garden of Gethsemane. Those root systems might be 2,000 years old. One of the neat things about it is you can usually look around the roots and you see little olive trees everywhere that look just like the big olive tree. That's how they grow. They grow right underneath the other one. He's using something that was in his life every day that he saw all the time. He said, hey man, when you walk with God, your children will be like olive shoots under your table. Well, he certainly doesn't mean that they're in a jar, you know, and and that they go nice with martinis. He's teaching that they will grow up right under your walk with God. They will look just like you. They'll be in your shade until they're able to stand on their own walking with God. Thus is the man blessed who fears the Lord. May the Lord bless you from Zion all the days of your life. May you see the prosperity of Jerusalem and may you live to see your children's children. Peace, shalom, be upon Israel. Walking with God carries with it the blessings of God. He looks after you. He helps you hold to the path. He protects you from the evil that wants to pull you off the path. He even will allow you to see your children's children. What a blessing. In Psalm 37, back to the left. Y'all tired of turning? You had no idea. You know, by the way, Psalm, this was the hymn book for the early church. Now, they don't rhyme and they don't work right in English. It's hard to make them songs, but we do all the time. Uh, I will lift my eyes up unto the mountains. That's Psalm 121. You know, we have lots of them that are songs. But this is what the early church got together and sang. Because in Hebrew, these are songs. Psalm 37, verse 23. If the Lord delights in a man's way, He makes His footsteps firm. In other words, if you're walking in His way, He'll strengthen you in it. Though he stumble, he will not fall, for the Lord upholds him with his hand. How important is that? 
How many times has somebody looked at something you've done that you failed or something some other Christian did where you failed a shortcoming and said, oh, he's done. He failed. Look, he's supposed to be a Christian and look what he did. The Bible doesn't say you'll never stumble. He says He'll uphold you when you fall. God doesn't throw us away. Not only can you get off of the way of wicked and on to the way of righteous, if you fall down while you're trying to walk in the righteous ways, He will uphold you with His hand. This is not a mean, angry God that wants to smash you, that wants to throw you away because you're a screw-up. He wants to uphold you like a father would a son and teach you to walk in His way. When we're studying this halakha, something that's important about it, if the law told people, they told them how to walk, but sometimes it was vague. In other words, the law would say, don't work on the Sabbath. Well, is this work or is that work? It was hard to determine. Most of Jesus' discussions with the Pharisees were not over whether the law was good or not. It was over how do I apply this? Show me how to walk it. Halakha. Show me how to walk it. This is where Jesus says, you've heard it said, but I say. He's showing them how to apply the law because He wanted them to get out of it what God wanted them to get out of it. How to love. How to walk in humility. How to do those things. This, every argument they had seemed to be over that. The response, Judaism today, rabbinic Judaism, has written down the Mishnah, the oral law, to try to explain how you're to relate to the law in every circumstance. And you know what? I haven't read all of the Mishnah and I don't want to pass judgment on it, but God didn't settle this dispute that way for us. You know what He did? He put a spirit in you that showed you how to relate to the law how to take His Word and apply it, what to do in each situation. This is what Jeremiah 31 said, In that day one man will not have to go ask his neighbor, for you will all know God. My laws will be written on your heart. He would show you Himself how to walk it out because His presence would be there. So Steve doesn't have to come to Eric and say, Hey, the Word says this and it says this. How do I reconcile them? God Himself is able to show Steve. Isn't that awesome? You're not dependent upon anybody. And yet you're not alone. You're a part of the body of Christ. Psalm 37. We were in verse 25. I was young and now I am old, yet I have never seen the righteous forsaken or their children begging for bread. They are always generous and lend freely. Their children will be blessed. Turn, Teshubah, from evil and do good. Then you will dwell in the land forever. For the Lord loves the just and will not forsake His faithful ones. They will be protected forever, but the offspring of the wicked will be cut off. The righteous will inherit the land and dwell in it forever. The mouth of, righteous, of, of the righteous man utters wisdom and his tongue speaks what is just. The law of his God is in his heart and his feet do not slip. The wicked lie in wait for the righteous, seeking their very lives. But the Lord will not leave them in their power or let them be condemned when brought to trial. Wait for the Lord and keep His way. That's the message to us. God will strengthen you in all that you're trying to do for Him. Now, you know some other real popular ones that mention the way, don't you? Sandy Patty sang about it. Your Word, O Lord, is a... Light unto my path. How do I walk in the way of God? If God really wants me to walk with Him, since I can't see Him, how do I do it? 
Well, His Word is a light to how you should walk. Read it. Meditate on it. Study it. It will show you. And where you don't understand it, His Spirit is there to make it clear for you. I want you to read something out of Isaiah. And then we're going to go to a few New Testament verses and stop. Is that okay? Are you with me? I feed Abigail sometimes. Tried with a bottle the other night. And poor little thing likes it so much and eats so much that she can't hardly hold it down. I'm trying to stuff you so full of the Word of God this morning that it will just come out of you all week to everybody that you meet. In Isaiah chapter 2, we see kind of the goal of this walk with God. You may have heard this many times in the past, but this one's worth meditating on. Chapter 2, verse 1. This is page 758 in the Thompson chain. This is what Isaiah, son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as chief among the mountains. It will be raised above the hills and all nations will stream to it. Many people will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us His ways so that we may walk in His paths. The law, God's instruction, will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between nations and settle disputes for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Come, O house of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord. The end result of this thing is that we end up in a place where God's Word goes out from Zion and He calls it the law because the law was not a bad word to them. It was the instruction of God. It goes out from the mountains and all of the nations are so craving for it that they're listening to what it says. And this causes us to enter into a millennial reign where there is no more war. All the enemies of God are being put down, even death. That is where we're headed. But you know what it begins with? Your walk now. Today, that's what it begins with. You are the chosen, priestly, royal people. Now you've been included in Israel who has always been that. That means that it begins with you and you're to teach others to do so. And it's not about what you believe. It's not your creed. It's your deeds. It's how you walk. Proverbs 15, 24, I'll read to you. Don't turn there. It says, The path of life leads upward for the wise to keep him from going to hell. The grave, hell, Sheol. The path of life leads upward for the wise. That's what God is doing. He's causing you to walk in a heavenly way here on earth. You just have to choose to do it. Now, there's another popular proverb. It it occurs twice in Proverbs. It's Proverbs 14.12 and Proverbs 16.25. This is the dangerous part. What does this say? There is a way that seems right unto a man. And in the end, it leads to destruction. There are two ways. God said it. The way of the righteous and the way of the wicked. And often the way of the wicked is what feels right. You want to do it so bad, you can't hardly help it. But it will ultimately lead to your destruction. Better to have vegetables with the righteous than meat with the wicked. Although that way feels like you should do it. 
You have got to stay on the path of the righteous or it leads to destruction. Well, how do you always know the difference between the two? I already told you Matthew 7, verse 13 says that there is a narrow and a broad road. The narrow road is only found by a few and the broad road uh, leads to destruction and most find it. It's interesting and I should have brought the picture on the temple. The entrance to the temple was very narrow. The way that led to life, God's commands, His law. The exit was very broad. The way away from God is a lot easier than the way to God sometimes because it's what's natural. But we need to be among the few who find God's way. In John 14, verse 6, Jesus says something. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He says this because there's question about He and His Father and Philip's asking all kinds of questions. Jesus clears it all up. He says, you Hebrews have always been trying to walk with God. I am that walk with God you're supposed to have. I am that way. To the point where later John is writing, and you can turn with me to these, they'll all be right in a row, in 1 John. You can get to the book of Revelation and hang a left if you want to find John. 1 John. 1 John starts on page 1355. Because Jesus declared that there was a narrow way. Because He declared few find that narrow way. Because He stood up and said, I am the way. John later interprets that for a letter, his first letter. Not gospel, but letter. In these words, starting in verse 5. This is the message we have heard from Him and declared to you. God is light. In Him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with Him, yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, His Son, purifies us from all sin. That was the promise of Isaiah. It would get that indelible stain out of you. If you're walking in darkness, you are not in God. Time to teshuba. Turn around. Repent. Get on the right road. And whatever your wrongs were, He will wipe out and make you clean. Now that's what First John said. John stood up and said, in the book of John, he wrote for the world to see, I am the way. Jesus is the way. In the first letter that he writes, he says, guys, God's light. You need to walk in His light. You can't be in darkness and say you're in light because he's remembering what Jesus said. Look at his second letter. Just a few pages to the right. This won't be hard to find this verse. This book only takes up one page. And this is love, verse 6. And this is love, that we walk in obedience to His commands. As you have heard from the beginning, His command is that you walk in love. This way that God wants you to walk on is not a self-righteous way. It's not a condemning way. It's not a mean-spirited way. The way that God wants you to walk is in love. Now, by the time John writes this a third time, he writes it in his third letter, which is probably on your next page. In the third verse, it says, It gave me great joy to have some brothers come and tell me about your faithfulness to the truth and how you continue to walk in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. The Bible declares that if you 
are in God, you must walk as Jesus walked. It's a way of truth. It's a way of love. It's a way of mercy. Because what God was really after was what Micah 6.8 said. He wants you to love justice, love mercy, and walk humbly before God. What does it mean to walk humbly? I defined humble for you all not all that long ago. It was to be completely devoid of your will, putting God's will before yours. If you're walking humbly, means you are doing what you know that He has told you to do. Now, when you don't know, you don't know. Make your best choice you can. He's able to prick you, to turn you in which way you want. Now, in light of this, does it make sense to you why the early believers called themselves something? Followers of the way. They had, it had been revealed to them through Jesus the way that you were supposed to walk, which was how every Hebrew thought of his life anyway, this pilgrimage towards God, not leaving the earth in the earth. So they called themselves followers of the way. Paul was prodded into that way because he wanted to walk right. He just didn't get it right. Don't be so scared about missing God, about it not going right in your life. Dedicate your ways to Him. He will prod you where you need to go. We're going to close with the book of Revelation in the third chapter. Tell me this is not a message to church today. Now, I'm not making an eschatological statement. I'm not telling you that these churches in the book of Revelation are our church today. These were written to churches in their day. And like all of the Word of God, it's still applicable to us today. But it very well could have been written to America. It wasn't, but it could be. Revelation 3, starting in verse 1. To the angel of the church in Sardis write, These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. You have a... Re- <laughs> Why didn't say I know what you believe? <laughs> I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up. Strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your deeds complete in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Obey it and repent. If you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come. Who's he saying that to? People whose deeds don't measure up. People who are pushing themselves outside of the covenant. Those are the ones that get the thief and the night coming. The rest of us are expecting it. Verse 4, Yet you have a few people, there's always a remnant in Sardis, who have not soiled their clothes. They, will, they, they haven't stained it with the tola worm. They will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes will like them be dressed in white. I will never blot out his name from the book of life, but will acknowledge his name before my Father and his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. If you've blotted your garment, there's a way to make it white again. But if you persist in disobedience and in rebellion, it's on our own head. The Word tells us about it. God will help you walk in the way of righteousness. He will protect you on it. He'll keep your feet from slipping. If you get off of it, He'll prod you back into it. It takes a really stiff-necked, rebellious person who really hates God to get out of this and stay out of it because God is trying to pull you back. He even put His Spirit in you to keep you from wandering from the way. What a beautiful God we serve. I want to walk with Him all the days of my life. I want my actions and my deeds to be found pleasing in His sight. And I know you do too. We're freed from 
the heresies that have come upon our church by returning to the Hebrew roots, I encourage you to do it at every turn. We need to close because it's time to close. So we're going to stand up and pray. And when we stand up and pray, we're going to pray that our halakha will be pleasing to God, our walk with Him.